praise his name. Leviticus chapter 24. We're going to begin here in verse number one. It says that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying to him, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil from an olive that's beaten for the light to cause the lamps to burn continually. Can you say that? Continually. It says, I want you to have these lamps burn continually without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation. Shall Aaron, who was the high priest, says, Aaron, order it from the evening unto the morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statue forever in your generations. That he shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually. There's so much that we can glean from the Old Testament scriptures. Tells us that the scriptures of the Old Testament, that many of these things are given for us to be types and shadows of things that we ought to live out in principle in our spiritual journey, our spiritual walk. And we see it even lived out in some capacities in the New Testament, these Old Testament examples. One of which I believe is one of the most rich uh, types and shadows that we have in the Old Testament. Things that we can glean from it is this, uh, this idea of, or this, this uh, tabernacle that was constructed. It was given These instructions were given to Moses to have the tabernacle built in a certain way. It was given to him that they would uh, not just uh, go and do this however they wanted, but God gave him even the measurements of each part of the tabernacle and even the, the articles of furniture that would be placed inside that tabernacle so that they could worship God in a proper manner. In fact, Scripture even tells us that the plan of the tabernacle, it was pre-existent to the one that was here on earth. That the one that Moses built, that that, in fact, was not the first tabernacle, but rather there was a tabernacle that was in heaven and is in heaven. And the patterns for which were given to Moses were based off of the tabernacle which is in heaven. And so we see this tabernacle that was uh, given to Moses, the plans for which, uh, so that they could build it there in that wilderness that they were abiding in. And as he gets through these instructions to Moses, as the Lord is speaking to him, he has him to build uh, these seven different articles of furniture that would be placed throughout the tabernacle. I I wish I I should have put a picture up here of of this in case you're not familiar, but uh, the tabernacle was the house of worship where they would go. And God said, I want you to build it so that I may dwell there with my people. I want to come and dwell with you. And what a precious thing that is, that God himself, God, the maker of, of all heaven and earth, the God of all creation, that he would say, I want to dwell with you. I want to be with you. 
And so God said, I want you to build this tabernacle so that I can come and I can have my presence there in the midst of you. And that's exactly where it was because when they would set up their congregation or when they would set up where their tents were at, it was always surrounding the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the house of worship was always central to everything that they did. In that, they had an outer court. There was this, uh, the, these, these walls that were constructed that, uh, they were open to the air and out in the outer court, you had in that area, the first thing that you would come to was a very large altar. A place that was not like an altar that, that we have up here, but rather it was a, uh, a place where they would burn sacrifices, animal sacrifices would be placed upon this altar and it was the largest article of furniture that was there in the tabernacle and they would come there. It was a place where the people themselves could come to and and they would bring their sacrifices and then the priest would offer it there upon the altar. And then upon offering that sacrifice, he would go and he would wash all of the blood off of him and the soot from the ashes and all of this. And he would cleanse himself in the brazen laver, this large basin of water that was there. And it was uh, the second article of furniture that one might come to in the tabernacle plan. But then, stepping foot inside of the tent, the structure of the tabernacle proper, he would come into a room. And there were two rooms inside of here, but the first room that they would come to, it was a room that had... Uh, the three articles of furniture in it. There was a table off to the right and this table on it. It had some bread. This bread was to sustain the priest that he could partake in that uh, during his duties of, of giving worship to God and doing the things that, that he was to do throughout the day. And this bread, it was to be made fresh every day, that it was a fresh bread. And we can glean so much from all of this. But uh, there was also an altar inside of there, one that was different than the altar outside. For this altar didn't have animal sacrifices, but instead it was much smaller and it had incense that was burning on this altar. This altar, it was one in which it was representative of the worship that would be lifted up to God. And they could feel and, and, and embrace, you know, in every uh, sense of their body, in their five senses, they could experience God in, in, in their worship in many ways. And they would do this, um, offer up this, this uh, sacrifice of this incense that would be burning there. But off to the left, off to the left, there was a lampstand. And this lampstand that was inside the holy place was the lampstand that we read about here in Leviticus chapter 24. This lampstand was one that it was to be constructed out of pure gold. And out of pure gold, they had in it seven branches. And from these branches, you could imagine the the outer parts of it that uh, they had different lights that would be burning. And the middle light was one that was known as the lamp of God. And that was the one that was to be burning continually. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3, it tells us here, this going down several hundred years following this instruction that was given to Moses, we see that ere the lamp of God went out 
in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. And I want to talk here today on this topic of keep the fire burning. Keep the fire burning. It's an Acts chapter 11, verse 26, that we learn from Luke that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Up to that point, there was no certain term for the men and the women who devoted their lives to the teaching of Jesus. There was no specific group identity for the people who had received the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues and whom had been baptized in the name of Jesus. Up to this point, I suppose they were just still known as Jews. Jesus himself was a Jew from the tribe of Judah. All of his disciples were Jews. Every one of the 120 individuals who gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost were Jews. In Acts chapter 10, we see that Cornelius and his family, who themselves were not Jewish, but rather they were Gentiles, that they received the Holy Ghost and that they were baptized. And from that day forward, we see that the Holy Ghost uh, would be poured out not just on this one specific family of Gentile believers, but that this would be for even us today. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I'm thankful for an Acts 10 revival. I'm thankful for that Acts 10 experience that this is not something that was just for a select group, but this is for all the world. And I think perhaps it is this reason that in Acts chapter 10 that we begin to see in Acts chapter 11 that these disciples began to be called Christians rather than just some renegade Jewish people. And I don't know this for sure, but, uh, but there was a distinction that began to be made between Christians and Jews right around that period of time. And while these two religions today, they still share many beliefs about God and man's origins, Judaism, it, it remains distinct from Christianity. Both of these, though, are linked. We, we have both of these are Abrahamic faiths. Both of them, they, they share much, uh, actually the Old Testament is, is a, the same text in, that, in which they would call it the, the Talmud. And we would refer to that as our Old Testament. And, but both of us, uh, Jews and Christians alike, hold dear what is stated in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. One Lord. Both of, both Jews and Christians hold to the belief of the Messiah. Though as Christians, we believe that the Messiah was revealed in Jesus Christ. They're still searching for the Messiah. But the Jewish people have fascinated me. They've intrigued me. These are God's chosen people. They have been since the time of Abraham that they were uh, and they, they still remain that today, that they are God's chosen people. That's why we ought to pray for Israel. We ought to pray for Israel. That's not to say that every action that the nation of Israel does today is justified or right. But let's pray for Israel. And let's, let's believe that God is there with them. And we ought to, to pray for them. For they are God's people. I've, uh, 
I've, I've studied throughout my, my years of just, just uh, being intrigued by the Jewish people, wanting to learn more about them. I, I always loved talking to Sister Eve as, as she would enlighten me on different things. In fact, her brother, when he was here, I, I was talking to him, him being a, uh, still a practicing Jew and talking to him about his faith and learning some things from him. And I've talked with, uh, with Sister Laura and I know uh, she has a lot that she, she understands about this from her her son's experiences, and and there's a lot that can be gleaned from this. I've read many books about the the Jewish people and just tried to learn about their history. And in my studies, I've learned that there are many distinct marks of the Jewish faith. And there are two of these marks, though, that they stand above the rest. One of these symbols in particular, it's emblazoned on Israel's flag, is the emblem of the Zionist movement starting in 1897. It's the Star of David. The Star of David is universally recognized as the symbol of Judaism. However, it's unclear where the Star of David ever originated from. It was never mentioned in the Talmud. It was rarely used in the ancient Jewish architecture or paintings. In fact, in spite of the importance that is placed on the Star of David today, and I don't want to dismiss this as a symbol of, of their, um, of their faith, but there, there is another symbol outside of the Star of David that has been much more connected with the Jewish people throughout history. In this, for thousands of years, we see the menorah, the candlestick, and the menorah has been the identifying symbol of the Jewish people. It has appeared on walls, on carvings, on pottery, an architecture that is thousands of years old. You can find the symbol of the menorah. Still today, the menorah, which is a seven-branched candlestick, is ever-present in Jewish culture. You often see pictures of it depicted in Jewish literature or arts, and every Jewish synagogue has a lampstand placed inside where the flame is continually burning. It symbolizes the menorah that was situated within the holy place of Moses's, uh, of Moses's tabernacle. And I said, it's a seven stick, uh, seven candlesticks. I see you looking up here, and that's, there's nine up here. I look for a picture of menorah, and this is what they gave me. But there is the original lampstand was a seven, uh, seven-pronged candlestick. Exodus chapter 25, Moses, he received those instructions from God in, in constructing this lampstand, and he's told to fashion it from pure gold. It's, it's to have one main branch, that middle stem, and, and from that, extending out from it, these other lampstands, and they have three branches on each side of that main branch. And at the top of these, there was to be an almond-shaped bowl that could hold the oil that was meant to burn and emit the light. And as I mentioned before, this lampstand, it was to be placed within the holy place of the tabernacle. It was the only source of light that was there in that room. It was situated there on that, that wall of the tabernacle. It provided light for the priest as he tended to the table of showbread and the altar of incense. But the lamp itself had to be tended to as well. In Leviticus 24, we already read it, but 
verse 1, it says that the Lord, he spake unto Moses saying, command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure olive oil that's beaten for the light. Pure olive oil. A common source of fuel for the lamps in that day. Olives, they were abundant in that region. They were easily pressed and and strained to produce the oil that could be used for many purposes, for cooking and 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 healing wounds and and but but one of which would be to to light. They didn't have electricity in those days, so they couldn't just plug in a lamp and turn on the light. And so they used had to use fuel and olive oil was one of the best fuels that they could get their hands on. It was common because it would burn for long periods of time and it would emit enough light to illuminate the whole room that they were in. It continues on here in Leviticus 24. It says, uh, they are to do this to cause the lamps to burn continually. That without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation shall Aaron order it from the evening unto the morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He said, I want you to put a new supply of oil in the lampstand every evening. Every evening so that the oil will burn continually throughout the night in all seven of these branches. Every night, I want that lampstand to be burning bright. Every night, I want that lampstand to be fully emitting as much light as it can. In the morning, you can put out the fire in the six outer branches. But in that middle lamp, which is elsewhere in Scripture, more specifically identified as the lamp of God, he says that you shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually. That that middle lamp, the lamp of God, it shall burn continually. You are never to let that lamp go out. I don't know if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. yourself, but I look back on the couple of times that I've been out to, to that, our nation's capital, and it's, it's such a beautiful place. I've had the privilege of going there a couple times and the architecture, the history, the museums, the, the majesty, the grandeur of, of the monuments and the buildings, you know, all of this. It's just an amazing place to go and to see all of this. And probably for me, the most memorable place that I visited while I was there in our nation's capital, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, the Washington Monument, though it was amazing. It wasn't Abraham Lincoln Memorial, but although I, it was an incredible memorial, but rather it was the Arlington Cemetery. Anybody ever been there? Arlington Cemetery. Where acre upon acre, row after row of tombstones that are perfectly aligned. Each of them marking the memory of a soldier or an individual who served this great country. If you go to Arlington Cemetery, there are two memorials that you must visit. First, you cannot go there without stopping at the tomb of the unknown soldier. This tomb that is continuously guarded by these infantry men from the old guard. And it's representative of all those who have fallen in battle. And we do not know where they're at. But the second memorial that you must visit, in my opinion, is the uh, memorial that is that of President John F. Kennedy's grave. After he was assassinated, his wife knew exactly how she wanted him to be memorialized. See, Jackie Kennedy, she had visited in her time in France 
a similar memorial that was there. And uh, she, at this tomb in Arlington Cemetery, she wanted it to be constructed as an eternal flame. It doesn't tower over everything else. It's It's really not... Something that you can see from far away, but when you get up close to it, you see this, uh, you see this flame that is burning there at his gravesite. And believe it or not, this eternal flame, it only took a day to design by the Washington Gas Company. It's designed to near instantaneously reignite itself if it ever goes out. If it's ever raining, it doesn't look like that flame is ever going out, even though it might, the rain might put it out for just an instant. It's being reignited. So it's an eternal flame. No wind can make it go out. No rain can make it go out. It doesn't matter how cold it is. It doesn't matter what is going on. It's warm enough. It's going to melt any snow that comes on it. And this flame is continuously going to be burning. And this is the level of consistency that I believe God is expecting from the priesthood. He said, keep the flame burning on the candlestick. You can let the six candles on the outer branches go out during the day. But that middle candle, that represents my presence among you. That represents my spirit there in the midst of you. That that middle candle, he says, I don't want you to ever let that go out. And unfortunately, they didn't have a continuous gas supply to the flame like they do in Arlington Cemetery. They couldn't just turn on the gas and for over 50 years now still not worry about maintaining the flame because the gas has been turned on. No. They had to be aware of the amount of oil that was in the lamp at all times. If it was getting low, then the priest, he would have to go and he'd have to get dip into the supply that was there. What's the, where, what's the level of the supply? Where's the oil? And he needs to go and he needs to get some oil out of the supply closet and he needs to bring it over and he needs to begin to dump it into that lampstand so that the fire can keep on burning. It says that it needs to be a certain oil. It needs to be pure olive oil. Don't let it be diluted. Don't add to it. It must be pure olive oil. Pressed from the very best olives. Day after day that oil was restocked. And the level of oil that was burning in that lamp was maintained. And such was the case year after year after year. But Samuel tells us that there came a day when the lamp of God went out. So there the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord. When the ark of God or where the ark of God was in Samuel, he was laid down to sleep. The lamp went out. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I know I certainly have at times where you feel as if your lamp is just about to go out. You've shouted. You've danced. You've leapt in the spirit. God has he's filled you with his spirit. You know that he picked you up from the miry clay. He's turned your life around, and yet here you are, and your lamp feels as if it's just burning a little bit dimmer than it has at other times in your life. The fire is burned bright at certain times. You've taught Bible studies, you've led people to the Lord. 
Maybe you haven't been in it long enough to experience all of that. But for the past couple of months, you know that God, he has been working in your life in different ways. And you're, you're excited about what God's doing. But now, for whatever reason, you might feel as if my light, which represents the presence of God, it just doesn't feel like it's burning quite as brightly. It's beginning to dim. Whatever, for whatever reason, whether or whether or not that light actually goes out, it's, it's going to be dependent upon your next decision. When you get to that place when it feels as if the light is beginning to dwindle, and you feel that presence is starting to, to feel as if it's not quite as, as strong as it once was, what is your next decision going to be? Are you going to keep your commitment to God and continue coming into his presence as we gather here for a service? Or are you just going to say, I haven't been feeling him the last couple of times I was there. So I might not, I might as well not go. I might as well skip out this week. I might as well just stay home. You know, I, in fact, I'll just, I'll just connect online and, and, and that'll, that'll satisfy me. That'll satisfy God. He knows where my heart's at. But what happens is we begin to get complacent. We begin to get in a place where we aren't tending to the oil. Where we're not tending to the flame. We're not trying to keep the flame burning. And we see as the presence of God, as we feel it begin to dwindle in us. What you do next is highly dependent on, on what is going to happen to your flame down the road. See, that responsibility of keeping the lamp of God burning in the tabernacle, it was a joint effort. It was a joint effort. It tells us, Exodus twenty-seven twenty, that thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring the pure olive oil. That they would bring it. They bring the supply. That the children of Israel, the burden of responsibility, first rested upon the people of the congregation. It was their responsibility to supply the oil. The people of the congregation of Israel. It was their responsibility to make sure that the priests would always have the oil to be able to be put in the lampstands. It's not about the priesthood for making sure that your light is always burning. It's our own responsibility. That we say, I take it upon myself to do what's necessary to get into the presence of God. To make sure that the oil is always there. And even when I don't feel it, it's not just about emotion. I'm thankful for the emotions that God gives us. And I want to serve Him with all gladness. And I want to, if I can dance and shout and get excited about a football game, then I want to get excited about God. And I want to thank God for all that He's done in my life. But it's not just about emotions. Because sometimes you don't feel like it. Sometimes it just doesn't feel like, you just don't feel like getting up and going to church. And I bet there was probably somebody who's here today who maybe you didn't feel like getting up and going to church today. But you're here. And I thank God for it. Because you're saying, I need to bring the oil. I need to make sure that I get in the presence of God. That's the place where I'm going to make sure the fire is still burning. I need to stay connected to Him. I need to bring the oil. I need to do whatever I can to make sure that I am tapped into the presence of God. 
Do everything that I can in order to keep the fire burning. The second, though, the second responsibility fell upon the priest. And after the congregation would bring the oil, it was the responsibility of the priest to pour that oil into the, into the candlestick and to check the level of the olive oil that was in the candlestick and to make sure that that fire never went out. But in that day, the tabernacle was stationed in Shiloh where the high priest Eli, he was maintaining the sacrifices and the worship within the house of God. However, he wasn't as young as he used to be. In fact, it tells us that he was quite old, that he could hardly see and he could barely walk with all the extra pounds that he had put on throughout the years. And he knew that he needed to pass on the duties of the high priest to someone else, but he had a problem. He knew that God had chosen Samuel to be a successor, but Samuel was still just a young boy, not able to step into that position yet. And so Eli, he begins to lean on his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. The problem was that Hophni and Phinehas, they were crooked individuals. They were accepting bribes for sacrifices. They were running off and getting in all kinds of sinful things. And they were walking then back into the church like nothing was wrong. They were hypocrites. And Eli, he knew it. But he couldn't keep up with the work that was required in the tabernacle at his age. So he allowed his two-faced sons to go and to do the work That he was supposed to do. Early one morning while everyone was asleep. The scripture says. That the lamp of God went out. Why did the lamp go out? Why did the lamp stop burning? Someone had forgotten to check the oil supply. Nobody bothered to make sure that there was enough oil in the lamp to keep it burning through the night. Day after day. Year After year, that lamp had burned continually inside that tabernacle, but misaligned priorities had led to their neglect. And that neglect caused the oil in that lamp to run dry, and the light finally went out. So you and I, we better be careful about misaligned priorities. For near is the day, When the light goes out in your temple, when we would rather be shopping or playing at the park or at a ball game or staring at our TV than worshiping God on a Sunday morning. When our priorities get mixed up, we often forget about our our oil supply. We don't even notice that it's getting low. See, the oil supply, it also can't just be dependent on when you're here on a Sunday morning. But it's an everyday thing. Every day. Every day they would bring the oil to the tabernacle. Every day they were there supplying the oil. Every day they needed to check the oil supply. Every day they needed to make sure that that lamp was burning. What are our priorities every day? See, my grandparents' generation, they, they may not have, have really understood this concept. And I think it's, it's good. Necessarily that they didn't understand this. Of what today we call work-life balance. Uh, we, we know that we have to work, but it's believed that there must be an acceptable level of work-life balance today. And, if, you know, we don't want to work too hard because we need to make sure that life is, is good. But sometimes I think that we can take that concept of work-life balance and we can bring it into our relationship with God. And we try to have a church-life balance. But you can't have a church-life balance because you are the temple of God. 
And you can't separate yourself into different compartments where you need God on these days, but you don't need him on these other days. No. We can't separate ourselves into this way. We can't, it's not about balancing this part of my life that I give to God and this part of my life that I keep for myself, I live for myself. No, you need to live, eat, breathe. Everything needs to be about Him. Everything needs to be about Him. He should be in everything that you do. God needs to be on your mind wherever you go. That's why the scripture says that we must continuously pray. He says be in prayer, in an attitude of prayer every day. In a moment, every moment of the day, you ought to be ready to just call on the name of Jesus if you need him. So I'm not saying that you can't take a vacation every once in a while. I'm not saying that there might be a, you know, a few times where you miss church on a Sunday or a Wednesday, but that doesn't mean that you miss out on God and you miss out on your time with God. And there, there's, there's times when perhaps you need to, need to kick back and you need to relax for just a, a time, but don't get your priorities mixed up to where you're missing church week after week after week because this is a place where you can get your oil supply. This is a place, right? This is a place where you can get filled up. This is a place where you can leave filled and going and saying, God, I have the oil that I need to keep the light burning, to keep the fire burning in my life. See, David got his priorities mixed up. David, he was supposed to be out with the, with the kings in battle, but he got his priorities mixed up. And he stayed at home. And it was in that time when he was supposed to be out there with the, with the soldiers that he fell into a place of sin. He tarried still at Jerusalem. And while in Jerusalem, he began to, uh, he began to lust after another woman. And he sinned a, a, an egregious sin in that moment because his priorities were so mixed up. Let's not get our priorities so mixed up that we get ourselves into a mess. See, David, in his middle of this, these mixed up priorities and this, these misplaced passions, he got himself into a place where he shouldn't have been. And he was messing around with things that he shouldn't have been messing around with. See, David, you could say you used to feel that God was so close, but here you are today and he just seems a little more distant. Your supply of oil is beginning to diminish. Well, I've been there before when you have mixed up priorities and you begin to feel that oil supply begin to dwindle. And here this morning, I want you to learn from David's response to his wandering away from God. Because in Psalm chapter 51, he pins a beautiful prayer that to him was much more than just some words on a page. This was him running to his supplier of oil and gathering every drop that he could get. And we could read the whole chapter, but I just want to read just a couple of verses. In Psalm 51, verse 2, it says, Wash me throughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. Thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. You see, when David's fire was going out, he didn't just accept it as the end of an era. He 
didn't try to reignite it with something of his own choosing. No, David, he went right to the source of the flame. He poured himself out to God. He looked at his priorities and he got them in order. He made certain that he was right in God's eyes. See, just because you feel as though that flame isn't burning as brightly today in your life as it was a month ago or 10 years ago, it doesn't mean that your life is finished. It doesn't mean that the flame is finished, burning. You repent of your of where you're at. Come to God. Turn yourself back to Him. He He is the source of your salvation. He is the source of the flame. He is the source that you can go to. I'm going to close with this. It's the story that that we ought to end with when we're talking about a lamp that would go out. That story that Jesus tells of the ten virgins. You know the story. Perhaps this Jesus, he tells us about those who are invited to a wedding ceremony. And weddings in that day apparently were quite an affair. They weren't like the weddings that you and I attend today where we come to a church and we sit down and we watch them walk down the aisle and they say their vows in front of everybody. And after 10 to 20 minutes, all is said and done. The bride and groom are married. Everything's good. Maybe we spend some time with them at their wedding reception, but it's all wrapped up in just a few hours. See, in that day, some weddings lasted days. You didn't know exactly when the wedding celebration was going to begin. All that you knew was that the two lovers were getting married and you'd been invited. And you had better be prepared for their wedding invitation and and have the proper attire on when the time came for you to join the wedding party when the celebration begins. Because if you forgot something or if you weren't prepared, then you're going to be turned away from the wedding. And in this story that Jesus begins to tell in Matthew 25, there were 10 virgins who they had prepared to join the wedding to which they had been invited. All 10 of them knew that it was going to be a long day of waiting. It may be dark by the time that the festivities began. So each of them prepared a lamp full of oil to light their way in the dark. Their assumptions proved to be right. The waiting was long. Darkness began to settle in. All ten of them lit the oil that was there in their lamps. But before long, five of them had run out of oil. They saw that these other ladies who were there, they had an extra stash of oil with them that they were using to pour into their lamps to keep that flame burning. So they asked them, could we have some of your oil? But the wise virgins said to the foolish ones, these ones who had allowed their light to go out, said, we can't give you our oil or else our flame's going to go out. See, while the foolish, the five foolish virgins were away looking for some oil to refill their lamps, the bridegroom came. They missed the wedding. See, what Jesus was trying to get us to understand is that you can't beg, borrow, or steal someone else's relationship with God. You have to keep that fire going for yourself. And the only way that you can do that is by going back to the source that started the fire in the first place. So I wonder if we could just stand in this place right now. I know it's been a 
somewhat of a, a quiet service here today. But as we stand in this place, I wonder if we could just have all around this house lift up our hands and begin to tap into the source of the oil. Tap into the source of the one who he's going to keep the flame burning. See, there are some of us who are here today who you know that you aren't as close to God as you were at other times in your life. And today is the day to get that relationship back to where it used to be. This altar is open right now if you want to make your way up here, if you want to rekindle that fire to get back to the source where it started in the first place. You're not going to find satisfaction in anything else. God is the only thing that can fill your hearts in that void that you have. If you're here today, you need to get your priorities straightened out. Let's find a place to pray. Let's just find a place to pray all around this sanctuary right now. That we would say, God, refill my oil. God, I want to keep the fire burning. It's not all just about emotions, but but I want to make sure that my, my oil is full. And the lamp doesn't go out. The fire keeps on burning. God, I want your presence. God, I want your sweet, sweet presence, Lord, to fill this place. Oh, just lift up your hands. Let's just pray to him.